Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And joining us in the studio today is Vice President and Principal Analyst John Reimer to discuss low code as a method and a platform. Welcome, John. Great to be with you, Victor. John, let's start off with what is low code? What does that mean? When we say low code, we're talking about low code development platforms. The purpose is to allow folks to build and deliver custom applications. And when we say low code, what we mean is uh, these platforms provide tools that are very visual, meaning that you can define and, and deliver applications without having to write code, without having to use a programming language, which can be a lot faster than writing, uh, than writing in a programming language. And the products can be adopted at a very low cost. And it, you can expand your commitment, your financial commitment to these platforms as the value you're getting from them grows. This is very different from the past of application platforms where you paid a lot of money up front and then just hoped and prayed that you got the value out of the, uh, out of the investment. And what's spurring this on? Is this, uh, is this an issue of companies want to move fast, they, they want to have more agility, meaning they want to change the game as they go? What's driving this idea of code getting, I guess, arguably simpler yeah, it's really application delivery getting to be faster. Low code really started to take off coming out of the last recession, so 2009, 2010. And uh, as you know, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of companies started to look at software and and what we now call digital as a way of spurring innovation for the customers, doing better by their customers, and creating new products and services. All of that activity requires software. And, if, and the amount of software that, that uh, companies were signing up uh, to deliver was just enormous. And it way outstripped the ability of their internal development groups to keep up. And so they started to look for alternatives. This is, this is really unusual because there's been a lot of skepticism about these kinds of products you know, over the last 20 years. But the problem was so severe, the gap between what the, uh, the, the traditional application development was able to provide and what the need was. The gap was so huge that people actually started to change the way they did the work. What you said sort of reminds me of when Jeff Immelt said, we're going to become a software company. In this case, GE was going to massively accelerate software relating to power, energy, healthcare, transportation, meaning the software had to be tied so intrinsically with what it was intending to do from a from an industry perspective, from a process perspective, and from an like a healthcare outcome perspective. Is that part of this puzzle, which is you had a lot of non-technology companies working hard to make technology work in their context? Absolutely. Uh, I think of that. I think of those examples as being primarily focused on innovation. Gee, you start running commercials, right? Well, you'd, you'd be watching a football game, and there would be a commercial where this kid is saying, "Well, I just went to work for GE," and they said, "I thought you were technical." And they said, "Well, I'm a developer." And GE now has developers. What they were doing was building products, uh, software products that either either allowed the you know made their pro- their physical products better. It also allowed them to generate new revenue streams. Really important uh, coming out of the recession. That was a real big theme. But then in addition to that, we had the 
uh, we had the phenomenon of companies looking at their companies looking at their uh, the way that they uh, interacted and supported their customers, and and around that time, everybody needed to have a mobile app. They, this was the this was the answer to improving customer engagement, and. What, what those mobile apps did was expose all the broken processes sitting behind the scenes. So, so you were okay in the mobile app if you stayed on the happy path, but the minute something went off the rails with your engagement, you had to go and talk to somebody who maybe could track down your order number in a spreadsheet somewhere, maybe, but probably not, and it just fell apart. And so a lot of the, uh, the push was also – We've got it. We're going to digitize our customer engagements to make them smarter, make them more convenient, make them more immediate. And boy, do we have a lot of processes to automate behind those customer experiences if we're really going to be successful. It was those two things, innovation and then process automation. Is this really an issue of talent? Like there weren't enough developers to do this work and to do this work at the speed at which it needed to be done? At, at both things. Okay. Both of those are true. In our typical client that has software development capability, those folks are tied down, keeping the core systems, the core record-keeping systems, mm-hmm. and the core business processes uh, alive and running. And so, you know, when we're talking about innovation, they didn't have they didn't have time right. for that. They didn't have time to work in innovation. We actually be, we actually began to see people set up companies set up um, innovation teams or digital teams. You would oftentimes they would oftentimes be called. And this was just, let's take a group of folks and get them out of the day-to-day because they're just tied down all day and really let them focus on new. So there was that phenomenon. But then there was also a realization that, hey, the people who really understand these operational processes that are crucial to the customer journey and the customer engagement, they're in the business. The central IT groups don't really understand those processes. And so if we could empower them to deliver, they know the data, they know the processes, they know where things go go wrong. If we can empower them to deliver software that, that automates those processes, we can actually expand the labor force that's delivering software and really get that really get that uh, that automation done and, uh, and 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 do better by our customers. Yeah, it's funny. In my experience with low code, was that innovation can sometimes be described as solving the client's problem better or the customer's problem better. And often it requires a deeper, more nuanced knowledge of the problem, which are the business people that are actually talking to the customer. So if you can if you can re if you can better connect or shorten the distance between the software development and the people that actually know what value looks like, you sort of got something. And that has been, I think, a little bit of the gap, I think, John, which is that that the software that was intended to innovate is separated from the people that really know the problem. Absolutely. Spot on. And, and by the way, uh, the, in the world of coding, um, those folks, because coding doesn't go away. There's always going to be coding. Um, those folks are adopting a set of practices and tools that allow them to cut the communications gaps with the business people that they work with. So everybody is everybody is working at this to, to just just get rid of those communications gaps, collaborate really, really immediately, effectively take joint responsibility. It's uh, it's part of an overall, I think, revolution in the way that we're structuring ourselves to deliver software. So a, a negative view of this 
could be that this is just another manifestation of sort of shadow IT, so the business people doing stuff on their own outside of an architecture so it doesn't have any real connective tissue, creating unnecessary or unknowable security or privacy or other risk. Well, I like to say that if you've got shadow IT, don't blame the vendor whose product you're using. You, if you have shadow IT, it's because you're not governing. You mentioned architectures. Is, you know, you're going to bring in a low-code environment, and are you going to just bring it in as a tool and just give it to a department and let them go? Uh, one of the exam, one of the worst examples uh, we've come across in our research was an insurance company that did that with a low-code product. They just brought it in. No governance, no constraints, no guidance, no nothing. Years later, they found themselves with 16,000 applications that were unsupported and running on a deprecated version of that product. So you, it's really on the customer. And some of the, some of the, uh, the most interesting research to clients that we've been doing is on how do you govern? Right. How do you balance the creativity that these products can unlock with safety, security, scalability, manageability. Uh, and and that, that really comes down to an effective governance program. And to your earlier point, Victor, the technical community and the business community working together really closely. In the delivery from the vendor to the buyer, at least in my experience, were what, what I would call nodes, sort of pre-configured business rules or pre-configured things that the code would do that you would purpose into whatever application you were building. And back then, there was less acute concern of someone placing spyware or other malicious code in those nodes. Is there a thing now where there's a concern that if there's something pre-configured, pre-built, the vendor, whether they know it or not, is delivering something to you that actually is a form of a Trojan horse, if you will? Right, but I but let's break it down. I think there's a I think there's a couple of dimensions here. One is that I think the the risk that you're describing primarily would would be attached to uh, solutions. So if I'm going to buy, say, CRM, uh, I buy a CRM app, and that app, in the way that it's built, in the way that it was built by the vendor, has security vulnerabilities in it uh, that I don't know about. Well, that's a problem. Um, that. So, so I think that's you know, in the same with hardware products and, and so forth. In in platforms, in platforms, I think the risk is is different. I think it's actually lower because the platform is delivered with controls that you uh, configure to implement security. So it's a it's an explicit step in delivering uh, applications. You configure. Roles, permissions, security—you know, uh, uh, um, granular permissions on fields and forms and and so forth. So, uh, I, I think it's lower in that you're you're not just taking something from a vendor that you don't you may not really understand. And then the second angle on this is that the most of the most of the adoption of low-code platforms these days is taking place in the public clouds. So these uh, products, customers are adopting these products, typically running on Amazon or, or Azure, so public cloud uh, product like that. Those, those products are so secure. I mean, they've got hundreds of people that are, uh, that, are, that are 
filtering through uh, day zero threats every day and and constantly improving the security of platforms and the vendors the vendors do their own security work but they but they also are, are leveraging the work of their uh, their cloud providers and so uh, you know it, it's actually I think it's actually a much higher much higher security there is much higher security uh, than there would be if it was just people buying products and installing them in their data center. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know we know how badly that we know how well that went. Uh, the CEO of Target lost his job because of a breach. Well, so that we just talked about one potential risk, right? But what about what about something maybe not as severe as security breaches, but the potential limited customization that these platforms would provide? What I would assume that maybe some people are kind of anti-low code for that for that reason, John. Yes, they uh, the the one of the objections you'll hear from developers, mind you, not not so much uh, business people, but mm -hmm. developers, is that uh, look the power that the, the 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 high productivity that these products provide comes from the fact that they are constrained. They implement frameworks and they implement certain. Uh, ideas and certain structures that you can use to create applications. Well, I don't want that. I don't want those constraints. I want to be able to design my own architecture, and and I want it to be exactly the way I want it. And and this is true. This is this is a fair comment. Um, if if in fact your development team needs to do something really novel or really you know they need the ultimate control over over that architecture, then low-code is probably not a good choice for them. But the thing is that with developers so scarce, what you, want, what you never want to do is, is uh, conclude that a project requires that kind of control when it really doesn't. I mean, these, these low-code products I've been finding are being used in all kinds of use cases. I mean, all kinds of use cases. So they they actually do provide an awful lot of flexibility to deliver uh, business apps, um, but there's always there are always those always those developers who say you know I need I need to get under the hood, and uh, and for for you know projects where I need to get under the hood I'm not going to use low code I'm going to go with with programming languages and open source and all that goodness. Feels like a very natural phenomenon, which is if you democratize coding. To the citizen coder, the people that are really skilled there might in this be some angry people. feel a little bit like, "Hey, wait a minute! What about my super skills over here?" I, I I see this as a natural phenomenon that may have little to do with true creativity, but more to do with human nature. Yeah. Yes, and and it has to do with the nature of the industry that we work in. Uh, the the fact is, I mean, I've been working in this industry for thirty years or something like that, and uh, there there you can see the history of the computer industry as one uh, one higher level of abstraction after another over time, and and I think this is just the latest uh, you know instantiation of that of that principle. So so you go back to you go back to COBOL in the '60s when Grace Hopper invented COBOL. She was actually trying to, to create a language that business people could use, the COBOL programming language. That's why it was designed. And and in the '60s. It was way more abstract and way easier to use than writing assembler. And then, you know, we progressed through the 70s and everything else. Uh, uh, so I, I think that I think this is the way this industry always operates. Um, 
and this is just the latest version of it. And the reason it's happening is because we just need so much software, and we can't create it using the older methods. We just can't. John, what kind of applications are being built? Like, what, which, which ones sort of dominate the landscape? The major category of applications that, uh, that folks are building with low-code are, are web applications that, uh, that expose information or processes or, or you know, business processes or, like, you know, shopping and things like that to, uh, to customers. Um, and, uh, and processes, automated processes, that operate kind of behind the scenes to support, uh, you know, to support customer operations. Um, the reason for that is that these products are really, really good at pulling information from multiple sources and then doing something with it, plugging it into a web page or a mobile app, uh, plugging it into an automated process, plugging it into a dashboard. They're really, really good at those uh at those application use cases. Now, that's the that's really what made low code. That's really what has made the low code market. But the vendors are really moving on, and uh, uh, the industry really is moving on. There's there's about a hundred vendors uh, in this game uh, at this point. So the industry's moving on a couple of couple of ways. One is to apply low code, the low code benefits to specialties like big data like AI. Uh, Microsoft announced uh, Azure AI. They provided an API. They provided an SDK for developers, for, for coders, and they provided a low-code tool. Hmm. This, is, this, is, this is a norm now. And so, so anyway, uh, low-code making it into lots of specialties. And then secondly, we are actually starting to see low-code being applied to core business systems. You know, ERP. This Five years ago, if I had said, well, this, the future of low-code is ERP, I would have laughed out of the building. It's happening. Because the vendors are getting better, and because the, these old legacy systems have become such a barrier to effective customer operations that people are actually cracking them open and, and uh, starting to modernize them, and often they'll use low-code. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because we had a podcast with Olivia Burdick and she was talking about some of the claims management systems and the fact that they're pretty aged out and the big challenge is not how do I substitute them out because that's not feasible or take a long time, but how do I strengthen them and build on top of them in a logical fashion so I sort of modularly build different capabilities on top of what is now going to be sort of the bedrock system. I was I assume low-code would have a big role in there because it simplifies the business's ability to build sort of functionality on top of that bedrock. Absolutely. But that was, that was first, that's step one, build applications that draw data out of those, those legacy claim systems or finance or inventory or whatever they happen to be, pull information out of, out of those systems and make it available in, in more flexible ways through mobile apps and, and the like, uh, you know, to uh, customers, partners, employees, et cetera. That's step one. But then step two is, hey, it, we could potentially use low-code to either modernize that legacy, uh, maybe we peel off a module and we redevelop it. Um, maybe we extend it using low-code. And then some people are, are actually saying, let's use low-code and replace it. The first value you gave to low-code was the visual tooling or the visual environment. 
And I imagine that one of the challenges of these legacy systems is simply the opacity. What does the code do? And I would imagine that what low code does is because it's visual, it actually gives you transparency, traceability, and auditability, which the business people can actually access the rules that are being applied to the data. It gives them a window into these legacy systems that may, they may not otherwise have. Is that part of what's happening? Is it simply your, your mining and building better because of visualization? Yes. But what they, what people really want is not so much visibility, but the ability to change, the ability to introduce new uh, capabilities, new modules, new user interfaces, new rules, et cetera. And if those, if, if, if your rules and your data schema and everything is all locked up in code, it's really, really difficult to change it. And that's why, you know, you don't, some of these legacy systems, people don't, don't ever want to touch them. Just don't, don't leave it alone. The guy built it's dead. <laughs> yeah, leave right, it alone. Right. Uh, don't ever touch it. <laughs> yeah, literally. And, uh, and, uh, so in, in our, in our economy now, in the digital economy, you know, you, 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 you see how rapidly, uh, companies want to change the way they go to market, change the product lineup, change their sales structures, change their partner structures. Uh, introduce new products. I mean, it's just it never ends, and so that's one of the that's one of the the key benefits that, that people are reaching for with low code is it it allows the software to change much much more rapidly uh, than it ever than it has ever been possible with traditional development. Now, governance in this in govern here's governance again. Governance has got to be a part of this. You don't want people going in and willy nilly changing your general ledger. Um, you know, that's just not, that's just not kosher. So there has to be some, uh, governance architecture, uh, and, and just attention to, uh, you know, what are we going to, where are we going to allow rapid change and where are we not? Uh, and, 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 you know, that's a, that's a really important piece of the governance puzzle. John, you mentioned AI, um, in our 2019 prediction, we, we are noting that, a lot of firms are going to try to better understand what AI actually does, like try to interpret what business rules, what decisions, which sort of screams for the business people that having direct access to the code that's actually being implemented and the visualization of that so they understand what is actually occurring here and is AI doing what I thought it would do now that's working with real data and can I live with both the positives, obviously, but can I live with the risk if if the test data and the real data don't don't aren't synced with each other. I imagine AI is very fruitful turf for this. Well, well, yes. Uh, AI is fruitful turf here. Uh, as, a, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there are low-code tools uh, available for, uh, for, for using uh, machine learning language services, for example. And, uh, and there are lots of really cool tools out there for building natural language processing uh, applications and so forth. They're very visual. You don't have to code. It's all good. But uh, it, it's not, there's not a slam dunk that these tools are going to give you the, uh, the visibility into why a machine learning uh, uh, algorithm reached a certain conclusion or, or if there's a neural network involved, you know, how did we get to that conclusion? Uh, that's really, that remains kind of a, a, a black art or an open question about how, 
how the vendors are actually going to uh, surface that kind of understanding. I, I don't think there's anything magic in low code, uh, you know, to solve that problem. In fact, it may it may uh, it may uh, uh, exacerbate the problem if people start building lots and lots of uh, machine learning algorithms and applying them, and we've got compliance officers who are saying you can't tell us how that process that that process works the way it's supposed to work. Right. So therefore, shut it down. So, John, when we talk about low code platforms. Are they all the same, regardless of user or audience? One of the things I try to get across to people is when you approach low-code, uh, be very, very careful about which user community you're targeting because, because products for developers are not going to be effective at all. In fact, they're going to be a disaster with uh, business people and vice versa. They're, they're very, very different audiences in how they approach application development. And so if you're going to seek to empower your business people, don't buy a product, don't buy a low-code product or subscribe to a low-code product that is really built for professional developers. It'll it'll overwhelm them with the complexity. So, John, we've used the terminology citizen developer, but what does that mean in real terms? Is Do those folks have a common set of characteristics who should be using these low-code platforms? Yes. Who are the citizen developers? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, first of all, first of all, they they exist and they've always existed, and uh, so in a way, it's nothing new. Uh, you know, back in the day, back in the day, people were using uh, well, people today use spreadsheets and they use spreadsheets to build all kinds of all kinds of esoteric apps and in finance and so forth. And, uh, you know, Lotus Notes back in the day and access and all that. So first of all, it's important to recognize that, that this activity has always gone on and always will. The, the, uh, the real opportunity here is to start to harness it as part of the software strategy. So then next, you decide you're going to do that. You're going to say, well, we're going to empower uh, business people, our business uh, people, our citizen developers. Who should we look for? What, what sort of characteristics do we look for? Well, you look for folks who generally, you look for folks who own or run a process or, or a department that, because they really know the operations of that department, whether it's fraud and investigations or sales or marketing. They really know, they really know the data, they know the process, they know that they know all the, know the, the automation that needs to take place. And then, you give, you give them an opportunity to demonstrate that they've got technical aptitude. Um, what, you know, sometimes you can recognize that because they already are, are using technology very aggressively and creating good results. Maybe it's with, maybe it's with a cloud product or maybe it's with uh, Excel or something like that. Say, hey, we're going to help you raise your game. We're going to put you on a better platform, more power, and go for it. But another, another if, if that's not totally obvious, one technique that I found people using to identify the, the, the people that really have aptitude for this kind of work is to hold hackathons. So you, you set up a workshop or a hackathon, maybe a day or two, and you invite people in, business people in. So you're going to solve your problems. Bring your problems in, and you, you work on a, on a platform, and you try to get to something kind of, you know, minimal, but some solution, those people will self-select. The people who really love the work, you'll find they take to it like ducks to water. 
and they're excited about it, and they want to learn more. And the people who don't, they'll come in and they'll be hands off. You know, they're good people, but they just they are not interested in software work. Just put them out. Put them out of your mind. Let them let them do their thing, but they're not going to really help you with your software strategy. So it seems like low code is pretty well purposed to the times that we're in, which is businesses looking for speed, looking for agility, looking for flexibility, and tying better innovation with a customer and solving the problem. This seems highly purposed to today's climate. So as you look to 2019 or 2020, where does low code go? I think low code goes strategic. I think we've got a lot of adoption, but I think we're going to see more and more uh, organizations, more and more uh, enterprises who are actually chartering members of their technical community, professional developers or sysadmins. They're going to charter them to support business people uh, using low-code platforms to create automation, create process automation. I think this is going to take off like wildfire in 2019. It's a big organizational change that will support uh, much, much uh, deeper usage of these products to to create really vital software. Well, as one of the citizens developer, I want to thank you for your time, John. It was great talking with you. Thanks. It was wonderful. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us. Forster's 2019 predictions are here. Download the guide at for.com slash predictions 2019 to uncover the major dynamics that will impact your business in the coming year. Again, that's forr.com slash predictions 2019. Thanks for listening.